Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope. Just like the previous episode, we're now going to show you three additional sermons presented at our annual Lamb and Lion Ministries Bible Conference, building on our theme, The Power of Prophecy, A Voice Crying in the Wilderness. Dr. David Reagan will focus on looking for Jesus. Bob Russell will address the prophet's mantle and call. And Tim Moore will ask you to consider, what are you looking forward to? Our hope is that these messages will offer insight and encouragement as we testify about Jesus the spirit of prophecy. The theme of this conference is the power of prophecy. And I have been assigned a topic, and that topic was pointing to Jesus. And I'd like to begin with the observation that prophetic voices have always been immensely unpopular. The Old Testament prophets were harassed, they were vilified. They were scorned, they were ridiculed, and yes, they were even killed. And this proves true of New Testament prophets like John, Paul, Jesus, and John the Baptist. It remains true today. The Bible says that in the end times people will want to have their ears tickled by pillow prophets who will speak smoothing words of comfort, leaving the impression, of course, that those who speak the truth will be shunned and will be condemned. And that, my friends, is exactly where we stand today in this nation. No one wants to hear the truth that this nation has crossed the point of no return in its rebellion against God. And likewise, very few Republicans want to hear that their party cannot save the nation. Those who speak otherwise, like myself, are the object of hate, male ridicule and condemnation. And again this is nothing new. In similar manner today Americans are responding the same way to warnings from God's prophetic voices. They openly scoff at the idea that God would ever pour out His wrath on this nation. And that attitude is true of even many professing Christians. It is as if Americans believe that God is sitting on His throne in Heaven draped in an American flag. They forget some very important things that we need to be reminded of this, morning, this afternoon. First, God is very serious about sin. Second, God always warns of impending judgment through prophetic voices. Third, God also warns through remedial judgments. And fourth, God has proclaimed in His Word that those to whom much is given, much is expected. That is a statement that should cause each of us to stop for a moment and think seriously about our nation. To those to whom much is given, much is expected. We have been blessed as no other nation in all of history except for Judah itself where the Shekinah glory of God resided. And just as Judah was destroyed, America will be destroyed if we do not turn back to God. We have been blessed and God expects us to respond. Well, my friends, God has blessed us more than any other nation in history, and yet we have rebelled against Him. In response, God has sent prophetic voices. He has sent remedial judgments to our nation, and we have turned a deaf ear. We have steadfastly refused to repent. To summarize, we have rejected God's Son. We have rejected His Word. Because of the seriousness of the situation, we need to be reminded of some words spoken by Alexander Solzhenitsyn 
Solzhenitsyn when he came to this country and he was asked to explain how in the world Russia could ever have succumbed to 70 years of communism. He replied, the answer is very simple. Men forgot God. And again that is where we are today. Our nation has forgotten God and in the process right this moment we are committing national suicide as we give in to the forces of humanism. God has stepped back. He has lowered our heads of protection. He has turned us over to depraved minds and He is allowing us to destroy ourselves just as He did with ancient Judah. The nation's destruction resulted in two of the saddest verses in the Hebrew Scriptures. You can almost hear God weeping as you read these Scriptures from 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place, the temple. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people until there was no remedy. Many pastors today, especially Pentecostal and Charismatic, but also some leading evangelical pastors in this nation are trying to console their congregations by promising a great revival is going to occur in this country that will turn us back to God. They point to the fact that this nation has experienced times in the past when the nation grew cold in the Lord and people began to pray and great revivals occurred and they argue this could happen again. Well, I think that is wishful thinking for two reasons. First, I believe the convergence of all the signs of the times which Alan Franklin referred to, I believe the convergence of all the signs, all of them without exception, indicates that we are clearly living in the season of the Lord's return and there are no end time prophecies whatsoever that promise a spiritual revival in the end times. Instead, all the end time prophecies about the church picture nothing but increasing apostasy, heresy, which we are witnessing all around us today. Second, our nation has not grown cold in the Lord. Our nation instead is an outright open rebellion against God and His Word. To put it bluntly, we are not a nation that is pushing God aside. Instead, we are a nation that is giving God the finger. We have kicked Him out of our schools. We kicked Him out of our governmental institutions. And our churches today are mocking Him by getting in bed with the world, seeking the approval of society rather than the one who died for our sins. Take for example a recent New York Times interview with the President of Union Theological Seminary in New York. Her name is Serena Jones. And when asked if she believed in the virgin birth she said, I find the virgin birth a bizarre claim. It has nothing to do with Jesus' message. The virgin birth only becomes important if you have a theology in which sexuality is considered sinful. It also promotes the notion that the pure untouched female body is the best body and that idea has led to centuries of opposing women. Incredible president of one of the leading seminaries in America. And then she was asked, what happens when you die? You would think that a person who believed the Word of God would not even stutter in responding to that. Here's what she had to say about what happens when you die. I don't know. There may be something, there may be nothing. 
My faith is not tied to some divine promise about the afterlife. People who behave well in this life only to achieve an afterlife, well that's a faith driven by selfish motive. In effect what they're saying is, I'm going to be good so God will reward me with a stick of candy called heaven. Our nation again is committing national suicide because of what I would call systematic godlessness produced by our embracement of the philosophy of humanism which puts all hope in man rather than God. We are witnessing what God promises in Romans chapter 1 will happen to a nation that systematically rebels against Him. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1 that when a rebellious nation refuses to repent as ancient Judah did, and as we are doing today, God will take certain steps in response. The pattern is as clear as it can be. Read Romans 1. First, God will step back, lower His hedge of protection around the nation, and allow an outbreak of sexual immorality. That occurred in our nation in the 1960s with the hippie revolution. Then, if there is no repentance, God will take a second step back, lower the hedge of protection further, and allow a plague of homosexuality. That occurred in the 1980s and 90s. And that is the reason that I recently wrote an article in the Lamplighter that said that homosexuality is not just a sin, it can also be a judgment of God. And third, if the society refuses to repent then God will take a third and final step back, lower the hedge of protection completely, and turn the nation over to a depraved mind, which is exactly where we are today. As we look to the future I don't believe that Trump or Biden, either one, is our nation's hope. And I don't believe that the Republican Party or the Democratic Party is our nation's hope. Our nation's only hope is Jesus, and since we have rejected Him our nation has no hope. But we should not despair for several reasons. First, we are experiencing a fulfillment of end time prophecy. The biblical prophets including Jesus Himself have all prophesied that in the end time society would disintegrate into violence and immorality, that it would become as evil as in the days of Noah, and that people would go about their business as if everything was normal. Sort of like this photograph of guys playing golf while the world is burning down behind them. Oh, those golfers. This is why the great pastor Adrian Rogers said, the world is growing gloriously dark. How can we say it's growing gloriously dark? Because it's pointing to the soon return of Jesus, the imminent return of Jesus. It's the reason Jan Markell has said over and over, the world is not falling to pieces, although pieces are falling into place. The second reason that we should not despair is because there is individual hope. For those of us who are believers, God has promised many times in His Word that He will never forsake us. Consider Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. A similar sentiment in Psalm 55.22, Cast your burdens upon the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And the same thing in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because because He cares for you. I love that last phrase. Because He cares for you. We have a personal God who cares for you, not an aloof, distant, untouchable God like they have in Islam. Oh, thank God that we can have a personal relationship with Him. A third reason that we should not despair is because of what God is doing in Heaven right now. The Bible says in Psalm 2, and this is where I always go when I start feeling down about society. In Psalm 2 it says that while all the political leaders of this 
this world are shaking their fists at God and saying, who are you to tell us what to do? We'll do what we please. Our Creator, it says, sits on the throne and laughs. He is not laughing because He does not care. Oh no, He is laughing because He has the wisdom and the power to orchestrate all the evil of mankind and Satan to the triumph of His will in history. And fourth, don't forget we have a fourth reason for hope. We have the incredible hope of the rapture of the church. Yes, Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. There is also hope for unbelievers. As Robert Jeffress likes to point out over and over, when the darkness deepens the light of Jesus will shine more brightly like a diamond on a black cloth, and more and more people will be drawn to Jesus and will be saved. Meanwhile, as the darkness deepens, those of us who are believers must serve as salt and light, standing for God and His Word, and refusing to give in to the demands of a pagan society, regardless of the cost. We must be beacons of hope, beacons of hope, pointing people to the God of hope, while urging them to put their hope in their only hope, and that only hope is Jesus, the Son of God, and the soon returning King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what is that hope specifically? What is the hope that we have in believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let me just give you a quick outline of what that hope is. Our hope is that very soon, any moment, any day, not one prophecy has to be fulfilled. Any moment Jesus will appear in the heavens. He will bring with Him the spirits of those who have died in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there will be the blowing of a trumpet. There will be the shout of an archangel. And the bodies of those who have already died will come back together in a great miracle of recreation. The one who comes is the one who spoke and the whole world came into existence. He will speak and their bodies will come back. It doesn't matter whether their bodies have been burned or their bodies have been eaten by worms or their bodies have decayed in the ocean. They're going to come back together. And those bodies are going to go up to meet Jesus in the sky. And He's going to take their spirits and put them back together with their bodies. And just like that He is going to instantly glorify those bodies and they will become immortal. And then those of us who are alive, maybe many of us here today, we will be taken up. And on the way up we will be translated from mortal to immortal. We won't even experience death. And then we will all go back. All of those who have turned to Jesus in the church age, we will go back to Heaven with Jesus. And there we will be judged of our works, not to determine our salvation, but to determine our degrees of reward. And when that, when that great feast is over Jesus is going to stand up and say, okay, let's go. And we will break from the heavens. We will break from the heavens. I don't know if you ever realized that or not. We're coming back with the Lord Jesus Christ at His second coming. When He returns to the city of Jerusalem He's going to bring hundreds of millions of saints with Him. And it says very clearly that in, Romans, in Revelation 19 that those who are given the rewards, those who are given the white robes and all, we're going to come back with the Lord Jesus Christ. There are going to be hundreds of millions of us hovering in the heavens, millions on the earth as Jesus lands on that Mount of Olives. When He lands there that mountain is going to split in half and we're going to see it. We're going to see all this. Once before he was there. Once before he was there and he took, he got on a little donkey and he rode down into the Kidron Valley and tens of thousands of people were waving palm branches in, in worship because they had heard of the great healer, uh, uh, the man who had brought uh, Lazarus back from the dead. And they were there to worship him and honor him. And they were shouting, Hosanna the Son of David, Hosanna the Son of God. But a week later many were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. He's going to replay that moment in his life. Only this time he's not going 
not going to ride a donkey down in that Kidron Valley. He's going to ride a great white war charger, the symbol of a victorious general. And he's going to ride it down in that valley while hundreds of millions in the sky are singing Hosanna. And we are, I can't even sing Hosanna today in a song without getting goosebumps because I know I'm just practicing for that glorious day. And we're going to be singing Hosanna. And he's going to walk right up to that eastern gate. Read Psalm 24. And it says that gate's going to blow open when he comes to it. And it says the gate will cry out, Come in, O you King of glory, come in. He's coming up to that temple mount. He is going to be coronated the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then we are going to be scattered all over this world to reign with Him as He reigns from Jerusalem in glory. And David in his glorified body reigns as a King of Israel. We in our glorified bodies will be all over this earth reigning. Every person in a position of authority on all the earth will be in a glorified body with the mind of Christ. Uh, the uh, persons who violate the law, uh, the, the people who come into the millennium in the flesh and, and give birth to children uh, who violate the law, they will be dealt with immediately. There will be no appeal from the judgment because every judgment will be correct. The earth will be flooded with peace, righteousness, and justice as the waters cover the sea. It's going to be a glorious, glorious time. And then at the end of that whole time we are going to be taken off this earth. We're going to be put in that new Jerusalem that Jesus has been preparing for ages and ages. Uh, something beyond anything we can imagine. And I think that from that viewpoint we are going to see the greatest fireworks display in all of history as God heats this earth up and burns away the pollution of Satan's last revolt. And now that fiery inferno is going to come a new heavens and a new earth. And we and our new bodies are going to be lured down in the new Jerusalem to the new earth to live forever and ever and ever with the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! Maranatha! Come quickly, Lord Jesus! So, I have been asked to talk with you today about transitions, the prophet's call and mantle. You know that most of this conference is about the second coming of Jesus, which is a subject that is close to all of our hearts. But since Dr. David Reagan has stepped aside, passed the mantle on to Colonel Tim Moore, those who planned the program thought it would be wise for us to have a family discussion about what it takes for a transition to be an ongoing success. Charles Swindoll one time said, when a man of God dies, nothing of God dies. When a man of God retires, nothing of God retires. And there are a number of examples in Scripture of, of spiritual leaders mentoring a successor. Moses trained Joshua for 40 years. David selected Solomon to succeed him on the throne. The Apostle Paul mentored Timothy, and then he wrote to him, The things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. But I want today to focus on the dramatic transition that took place between the prophets Elijah and Elisha as recorded in 1st and 2nd Kings. So here's, here's the first practical lesson we need to learn. Preparing someone to take your place often provides a renewed sense of purpose. One of the quickest ways to get out of despair is to get your mind off the past and onto a new challenge. Few things will rejuvenate you like being involved in a significant mentoring relationship. Here's the second lesson I want you to remember. Successful transitions always require a sacrifice. Elisha's a prominent wealthy farmer. 
he sacrifices his resources to become a prophet. Now, some of you behind the scenes may be asking, can Tim Moore fill David Reagan's shoes? Now, let's admit, those are, those are big shoes. Uh, David Reagan is an anointed prophet. He is a dynamic speaker. Everywhere he goes, he creates a revival. He brings a bunch of groupies in. I don't know where they come from, but they come from everywhere. <laughs> and God is blessing. Those are big shoes to fill. But Tim Moore has some unique gifts also. He's an effective communicator. He's brilliant, industrious. He knows scripture, much better looking. And <laughs> Tim Moore knows how to say, y'all. David Reagan never, never says that. And rather than asking, can he fill David Reagan's shoes, we need to be praying, Lord, give him a double portion of your spirit. Here's the third lesson. A successful transition requires a timely passing of the baton of leadership. Here's my final lesson. Wise successors bend over backward to show respect for the predecessor. That's why it's an advantage if the two are good friends. There's not resentment, but appreciation. And I hear Tim just over and over again praising Dr. Reagan. Now, let me say a word to the many of you in here who are loyal to David Reagan. You continue to love him. You continue to honor him. But don't be a groupie. This ministry is about Jesus Christ. It's not about David Reagan. Your loyalty is to the Lord. Turn around and be an encourager to Tim. Support his ministry. Be flexible and open to change because some things will be different. I challenge some of you who give, double your gift this next year. The mantle has been passed. David Reagan has laid the groundwork for a legacy. Let's get behind that work and behind Tim and make it happen. I want to talk to you today about the theme of my message for today, which is looking for the Messiah. And I'll do that by asking you, first of all, what are you looking forward to? What are you looking forward to? So while you think more about your answer, perhaps, I want you to turn back in God's Word and consider another exemplar who was always looking forward, following my theme today of kind of going back to the future for just a few moments. Let's learn from Father Abraham. And the writer of Hebrews recognized the significance of Abram's obedient faith. He said this, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place which he was going to receive for inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. Sight unseen. Well, there's something else very striking about Abram's journey of faith. When he arrived in Canaan, he did not yet possess the land. In fact, Scripture records that he lived as a nomad all his life. It says this in the next verse of Hebrews. By faith, he, Abram, lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, 
dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. So let's pause for a minute and consider Abram the man. We know that he was obedient to God, but that was not the reason he was blessed. As a matter of fact, Paul even said that Father Abraham was not justified by his works. He wrote, if Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And then citing Genesis 15, 6, Paul wrote, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. I find it amazing that it's the same formula that God credits us with righteousness because we believe him when he declares that only by my son Jesus Christ can you be saved. And if we believe him and put our trust in Jesus Christ, we are credited with his righteousness. How was Abraham like us? Well, he loved his family. He determined to defend them, sometimes by just his own cunning and power. He just demonstrated great impatience when he perceived that God was taking too long to fulfill his promises, eventually choosing to help the Lord along. He manifested great anxiety and resorted to lying to protect his wife and family instead of trusting entirely on God. And of course, he experienced a great trial that tested his faith, powerfully demonstrating that faith in God proves God's faithfulness as much or more than it does our own. Well, in the end, Abraham offers us an even more pressing example because imperfect as he was, prone to inconsistencies and errors in his faith, as we are, he was living, looking forward to something that he never attained in his lifetime, although it was tied up in God's very promise to him in the first place. You see, Abram never possessed the land God promised. Furthermore, living in tents throughout his sojourn in Canaan, he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, do you understand what Scripture is telling us? Other than a single son of promise in his very old age, Abraham never realized the promise God had made to him. He did not live long enough to see his offspring become a great nation. Indeed, he only had one son who would inherit his covenant. Once again, Abraham believed in a slow motion, multi-generation, agonizingly distant promise of God. How about you? Are you content to wait upon the Lord, confident that your faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen or perhaps not yet seen? Because, brothers and sisters, if the Lord tarries, some of us may not see the fulfillment of all the promises. I think it's coming soon and very soon. But if he tarries, do we remain faithful as Abraham did, even to a promise that may take another generation or two to be fulfilled? Well, that wraps up the highlights of our The Power of Prophecy Bible Conference. Hopefully, we've just whet your appetite for the full presentations, which can be viewed online at ChristinProphecy.org on our Christ in Prophecy YouTube channel. If you'd like to get all of the 2021 conference messages, along with bonus material including music by The Purple Holes and tributes to Dr. Reagan, a three-DVD set is available for a gift of $25 or more, which includes shipping. Just call the number you see on the screen or visit our website and we'll send you the complete DVD set that contains all five presentations by Nathan Jones and Alan Franklin, David Reagan, Bob Russell, and Tim Moore. Now, having shared our conference highlights, 
We trust that the Holy Spirit has been one, motivating you to go and forth tell the good news about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and two, that you're paying much closer to attention to what you have heard regarding the signs of the times. Now, you won't want to miss the next episode of Christ in Prophecy. We'll be launching a brand new series that will focus on Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. We'll start in Genesis and see how the Messiah was present from the very beginning. We'll be weaving in some surprise guests and new features and tie what we have learned to the signs of the times today. We also hope you'll follow along by reading and studying each book of the Old Testament as we move forward. God has a special blessing in store for you over this coming series. Well, that's our program for today. I pray that each episode of Christ in Prophecy leaves you longing for and loving Jesus' soon return. Maranatha. Thank you.